Hey, Andrew. Hey, Greg. It, it's been another week. Only We're both a week. still anime-free, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I have not watched any anime. You have not watched any anime. We're being honest with each other. Um, we're returning to, to normal life here. And we we have, last week, we talked about, you know, just some various things we'd been watching and, and reading. And we made a very long list and we only got through about half of it. <laughs> so we, luckily, we have content ready for tonight. <laughs> yeah. That plus another episode of Watchmen and, and we're ready to go. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to start with something special, Greg. Oh, no. I think I'm having my first, like, midlife crisis. You and just I, turned 30. I know, I know, I know. But I need you to either guide me away or guide me through something. Oh, Preferably no. the latter. But oh, if it's no. the former, I, you know, I think you'll be able to talk me out of it. So I've been going to, a f- you know... I, it kind of comes and goes in ways, but, you know, metal shows, I still attend live shows. And I've been to a couple smaller ones recently, and I'm looking on the crowd, and I turned to my friend and I said, you know, I kind of think I want a battle vest. All right, tell the normies what that is. I, I will. So, and people will have an image in, their head, image in their head as I describe it. So, a battle vest in the metal community is a, typically a vest, sometimes a jacket, but usually a vest uh, that is usually made of denim. Usually blue denim, but let's, sometimes black denim or other materials. Let's be clear here. It is not a blue denim vest. It is a blue denim jacket that has been de-sleeved. Well, this is a question. I have a couple details to go through, guys. You're my fashion expert. Okay. And, you know, you also know metal, so I feel like there's a good convergence of your interests. And I wanted to see if you were to make a battle vest, or in this case, if I'm going to make a battle vest, what would you say? Mm-hmm. So there's a couple features here. Uh, first off... It's a vest, right? It's not a jacket. Okay. Do you agree? Uh, I agree with you conceptually. I don't necessarily have... Well, I don't have strong opinions on battle vest etiquette. <laughs> Greg, um, you have strong opinions about... I don't... No, this is wrong. I, you have strong opinions about everything. Therefore, I, you need to develop some quickly. Uh, I'm not going to say what is... Is it more or less appropriate to have sleeves on your denim jacket? Okay. Well, we're going to get any more details on that, so you better think quickly. Uh-huh. So I'm I'm going to say I think it should be a vest. Mostly okay. for, you know, conceptual nostalgia reasons, because that's what you imagine in your head. It's called a battle vest reason, but also because it gets very hot in metal shows, and having sleeves, especially denim sleeves, would be very uncomfortable. Okay. Okay. So some, some things to walk through. Denim or no? Well, it's... What else are you going to do? Are you going to do leather? I've seen some people do like, uh, like just more like a cloth, maybe a, some sort of co- cotton blend or something, where it's like more like the material would be like a, it's like a light jacket. I'm trying to think of what it would be. I'm not, I don't know my material. Like an army well. jacket type thing. Yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff. Like black or sometimes camo. I'm not in the camo thing, but I just want to make sure that. Well, what do you think? I, I mean, okay. First of all, I want to say um, I've been to a lot of metal shows. And I've seen a lot of pictures of people at metal shows. I'm very familiar. I, I, I've seen a lot of these vests, probably hundreds, <laughs> either in person or in, in photos. I've never seen a good one. <laughs> okay. I've never, I've never seen one of these things and looked at that and said, good call, buddy. <laughs> 
I'm um, not saying this is a good idea. Let me let me let me let me talk a little bit about why I think a vest is a bad call. Um, the metalhead tends to be an indoor boy. <laughs> um, and generally tends to not be, you know, um, not be a guy who spends a lot of time on his uh, physical fitness. What I'm just, saying is just that doing those crunches with those PBR pounders, man. Metal guys like women above a certain age would do well to keep their arms covered. Um, it's just not a great look for a lot of people. So sleeves are your friends. You don't need to not have sleeves on. Well, I think you wear it over like a I t-shirt. Know. Yeah, or I a- know. But I'm just saying, I'm just saying as aging metalheads, we should be working on covering more of our arms. Mm. So you're saying I should go with a jacket. <laughs> if you're going to go with something, that's I, I would say go with the jacket. Mm, OK, well, that only is my second question, because I was going to uh-huh. ask if it is, you know, cut off. Do you get one that is, you know, properly stitched shut or do you go like frayed? Well, I think you're going. I mean, I think if you're going that route, frayed is the way to go. OK, but um, don't go that route. OK, Uh now we get into some details here. So uh-huh. on the battle vest for sure. the normies out there, an important piece is like generally most have a kind of central back patch. Yep, you've got to have the, the back patch. That's the that's the that's the marquee. Yeah, the big anchor that holds the whole room together. Yeah, uh, as it were. So I was trying to go through uh, like ah, what what band would I get a big you know what was probably maybe like. 8 to 12 inches by mm-hmm, 8 to 12 mm-hmm. inches, something like that size. Mm-hmm. Um, this is if this is kind of just within a realm of like, let's assume every band has one of these. Um, and I was like, I don't know what I pick. I kind of feel like you got to pick a band. Uh, there's two routes here. You go like classic, just get like a great classic Iron Maiden or like Judas Priest, just like pay homage, anchor in the, in the history. And then you can surround it with all the kind of other stuff you like. Or do you just go something that you really, really like and think is is cool, a band that you like that has good imagery? Um, I was thinking something around the lines of like a cool Moon Sorrow one or something equally like blackened folk, you know, dark but folksy. Uh, what would you pick, Greg, if you were going to have well, a back pass? Uh, the back patch that was on the denim jacket that I wore in college was Faith No More. Okay. Yeah, it was a big. Uh, oh, so, so you had a you had a semblance of a battle va- battle vest. Yeah. No, I, I had a I had a denim jacket that had uh, patches on it and and pins and shit. I had one of these things when I was in college. <laughs> that's the that's really the key thing here. Um, and uh, yeah, no, mine was faith no more. Interesting. So you want one more with the classic, like ground it in something cool. Also, yours is a little bit typical Greg, where you're trying to kind of flaunt it in the metalhead's faces. Like, yeah, Faith No More. You want to fight me about it? What? Man. Also, this was like 2002. Faith No More wasn't controversial. <laughs> <laughs> I just find they weren't like, I wouldn't, a lot of people would not consider them like metal. Well, no. Well, yeah. I mean, sure. They they were, they were not a, you know, uh, metal in the early 2000s metal was was a little bit of a broader umbrella but anyway i'm not here to defend faith no more i mean i'm here <laughs> to defend faith no more but um that was the one i had um if i had to do it today uh gun to my head <laughs> um i mean i think i would still want it to be 
some kind of fuck you to the other people at the show, which would probably be like a late period Ulver backpatch. <laughs> um, that just says like, I yes, I understand that they are no longer a black metal band and I am definitely including the imagery from that period of them. Mm. Typical Greg, always picking a fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, well... But here's the thing. Here, but this is this is the key element here that I think you need to consider uh, distinctly when you consider this is that this thing, the the battle vest, or I believe they're also sometimes called cutties or cuttas after the German K U T T E because mm-hmm. the sleeves have been cut off. Um, is that these things have to look like you've been wearing them and sleeping in them for twenty years. Oh, I know. I feel like my ship you is sailing. However, get if I into start this, now, you, no, you can't start now. If I start now, because it, denim takes a long time to break in and develop a good patina, and patches need some time to kind of get kind of grungy looking and look like they've been there for a while. And it also helps if you have some spots on it where. Like you can even tell that like there's a there's like a weird circular spot where the denim isn't as faded because there used to be a patch there that you got rid of for some reason, you know, like mm. um, this is this thing needs a history built into it. It needs to have, you know, so like you if you show up wearing some brand new thing, um, you're going to look like. You just like you just got out of some like Christian cult and you're just getting into metal just now. <laughs> oh, God, I look like a poser. I, I, I wouldn't say you'd look like a poser. I mean, you, you know, your ponytail, it, you know, <laughs> does communicate a certain level of I've been at this for a while. Um, but I would just say um, it, it's it's too late to bring that authenticity to it now. You're right, Craig. And that is that I did have that thought. And that was truly the thing that. Immediately and initially, you know, deflated my like, I'm going to do. Oh, no, it would suck. That's pretty much the only thing that's going to stop me. Well, I, I, yeah, don't don't do this thing. <laughs> All right. Don't you successfully don't do this thing. Generally, whenever you ask me about some clothing item, if you should buy it, usually I talk you into buying it. This is <laughs> not one of those things. Look, if you want to buy a nice denim jacket we could talk about that for an entire weekend and i can help you out but i swear to god do not cut the sleeves off of it and cover it with patches <laughs> fine look i've got a i've i've got a black uh trucker uh, waxed black denim waxed uh trucker jacket that i wear when the seasons are changing and it might be a little rainy and it's black and i've got one little emperor pin button on it and i've got one little mirror just circular mirror button on it and that's all i need i've done my job Mm, classy i like it uh do you still have your jacket craig or did you just trash it um i don't know where that thing ever ended up at some point i pulled off all or most of the patches wow that feels Um, harsh uh it feels like sacrilege like desecration well look tastes change Mm, yeah that's Um, true uh, in hindsight, maybe I do wish I'd kept it as some kind of relic of um, younger and more foolish times. But uh, no, I do not have that anymore. Very well. 
All right. Well, that's just I want to start, you know, get us warmed up with a, a important conversation uh-huh. before we delve into something. Um, but speaking of metal, I just wanted a little plug that uh, I did see um, two metal shows past week, which is pretty cool. Both very small um, at bar or bar size venues, which is the first time I've done something like that in a while. Because as you get older, you're like, I'm just going to go see Between the Bear and Me for the 12th time. Um, and one of those bands I want to recommend to people out there who are, you know, I think that they're approachable somewhat, um, for people who are like metal curious. I, I've been calling them wild run for a long time, but I was instructed last night after seeing that they are called Wilder run, uh, spelled wild and then the letter E and then R U N. They are a folk death metal band from Boston. Yeah, I mean, I think in their earlier days they were a little folkier. Yes, but, for uh, sure. Because because you you hipped me to their new album uh, today, and I listened to it, and it's something else now. Yeah, like, there's definitely still some mild folky elements, but really just in the way of like they occasionally have some like acoustic interludes, and yeah, yeah, they definitely were more folk folky and folk. They're like almost more folksy than they are folky now, but. And just like a lot of like, I mean, not folks that were just like a lot of, yeah, like acoustic and piano interludes and, uh, people have described them as Opeth meets Teresa's, which is like, I get it, but, um, it doesn't encompass all of what they've become. I think, uh, they have a really just like full and complete sound to me, yeah. uh, which I enjoy. The new album's called Veil of Imagination. Imagination. It's a little heavier than the last one. So I actually would recommend their previous album, but, um, I just, that's been on repeat for a long time. I saw them last night. They sounded fantastic and they're not uh bands i was put it this way local bands that try and do the folk or atmospheric or symphonic or progressive kind of thing it's like a risky proposition because it takes a lot of talent and also can take a lot of expensive gear to like get that live sound where it needs to be let alone you know getting it recorded well but you've got time and there's all these softwares and stuff now but uh they're the real deal they're good yeah i um I, I sent the album to Jordan, um, our our mutual friend and, you know, the uh, drummer from my old band. Um, we send each other albums all the time. And um, a lot of times we'll refer to a band as if some other band had, like, gone the other way. Like, you think about, like, there are certain turning points in a band's career where they choose one of two paths. And I described this as if Opeth had gone the other way, mm. right? Like if, if Opeth right around the time of uh, maybe, you know, Deliverance had gone away, leaned away from the 70s prog rock and more into the Baroque death metal, um, I kind of feel like they might have ended up in a place where Wilderun is now. Also, if Devin Townsend had started producing them. Yeah. There's certain elements where I'm like, that's a Devin Townsend move. Um, but like some other bands like that, like Inter Arma mm. was described as if Mastodon had gone the other way. Okay. It's like, yep. Um, and there's a really, really amazing, it's just a, it's a totally weird thing. Um, it's just four tracks. It's by, um, it's not a split, you know, like where a band will do a split where one band does two songs, another band does two songs. Uh, it's credited to, um, Conjurer and Pigeon, but it's, but it's like those two bands coming together to be one band to make these four songs oh. on this album called or EP called Curse These Metal Hands. And uh, Jordan described it as if Baroness had gone the other way. And it's perfect. Hmm. Um, that's yeah, really that's good. That's a good way of thinking about 
I never described a band like a band's album that way, but I like definitely like that. Yeah, cause line of thinking because like all of a sudden you imagine this kind of like alternate timeline <laughs> where yeah. you could, like you can instantly pick out the point where you're like, "Yup, now I can see where a particular band had made a choice to go one way or the other." And then there's this other alternate universe Bizarro band where you know, like, oh yeah, what if Mastodon had just gotten like more technical and growly and you know rejected you know all the poppiness mm. i actually want to check that out because i probably enjoy it yeah inter arma is a hell of a band um kind of like sludgy mathy doomy but not slow you're listening to inter arma like what's mm. stopping you um yeah i mean it's a lot of work to like boot up spotify and like yeah cooking. i know it's like why describing things to people describing bands anymore it's just like huh here's the thing you might like it i don't know listen to 30 seconds of it make up your damn mind <laughs> we need to write an essay about this also um when i was at the show last night um which by the way the last band ended at midnight and i was Ooh. like Oh my God, it is, I am way too old for this. Goddamn kids uh, these days. I know. But, um, I had texted you when I got there initially to the show and I was like, this more or less locally, you know, regional folk metal show is homogenous. <laughs> but I texted you later and I said, I take it back. Yeah. So when I first got there, it was just like uh, 20, just like tall, thin, bearded, long haired dude, like dark haired dudes. And I was just like, okay, well. This is a thing, I guess. <laughs> but as the, as the crowd filled out, and it was not a big show. It was probably less than 150 people there, maybe even 100. And I was looking around. I'm like, this is actually really good. There's like, I mean, you know, I will say in within the metal scene, folk metal tends to have a more like tends to be a little more towards equality within it comes to gender as far as like fans. Huh. Um, you know, because a lot of the popular folk metal bands did have female members, I think, you know, mm. because, you know. The folk sound, I think, is a little more of it's kind of an avenue into metal that's not the typical way in. For example, one of the bands last night had a female violinist as part of their band, who's quite good, actually. Um, Another band had someone who I assume was, you know, I'm going to make an assumption, which isn't something I do, but, you know, I heard them talking a little bit, overheard. So I think they're a trans person, identifies trans, and also a female drummer. And I was like, oh, like this is, you know, and there's a good mix of different ethnicities. I'm like, middle's just, it's getting a little more, it's getting a little more there and it makes me happy yeah. to see that. So, uh, especially in like a local, you know, local scene, which is good. So just props to, props to that. And everyone being a little more, a little more nice and inclusive. <laughs> anyway, enough about metal. Um, I need to talk about something else that is re- relative to my age. It's making me feel bad because I wrote in here that I'm secretly a teenager and I only, I only want to be playing Apex Legends right now. Have you played this game, Greg? I played it um, kind of that first, like when it first launched, I played it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, played it a little bit. Enjoyed it to a certain extent, but I think at the time it was a little bit like, oh boy, this is this would getting good enough at this to have fun with it consistently is more effort than I can put in right now. Yeah, that's a pretty good description. I think I I had kind of played the same time and I was I think the game's really cool and I was like I'm into this I want to get good at it, but I just sucked. And I kind of fell off of it for a little bit. I also just got a little busy then you know, I kind of played a little more and then they, they brought out a brand new map and a new season and some stuff and I was like I'm really going to try and double down and so I think I've crested that point where like I'm okay enough that I can like get a few kills and like not just 
feel shitty the whole time I play, but it is a big recognition that like I am 30 years old and my reflexes are, and my, I feel like it's much my eyesight too, just like is not what it once was. And I just like don't see people and can't hit them with my gun. And it just, it just feels really bad. Not that I was ever like amazing at these type of games to begin with, but it's just, it's just part of getting old. Really yeah. feeling it. I don't know. I actually read an interesting article and I can't even remember who wrote it or where I saw it. So credit where credit's due, I guess. <laughs> but basically kind of said like, so is it about like, oh, that we're getting older and there's a certain element of physical skill and reaction time where we just can't compete with these younger kids? Or is it just that these kids are just better at it because they got better earlier on than we ever did that and that when they're our age they'll still be amazing mm. and it's not really a physical thing it's just that um you know because like when i started playing video games competitively it was with people on the couch next to me um so and then you know most of the time like even the early days of online gaming um it was mostly you know guys in their 20s and it wasn't until kids came in but then but all the guys in their 20s who were playing like when xbox live first came out you know we were all guys and we all started the same way our skill level you know was more or less the same but now these kids that are you know they started you know online competitive multiplayer on day one like they're always just going to be 10 steps ahead but anyway um yeah i don't i anything that is like um really like reaction focused or a game where you have to like practice to get good enough um i'm not gonna have a great time online with those like eternal works because for for me because it's like that's really decision making um and yeah you can practice but um it's a different kind of like it's just you're you're getting smarter or you're you know um but yeah no i yeah yeah we we're struggling as a this is like another this is kind of a tangent but we've been struggling as like a friend group because a lot of my friends you know growing up from high school and then in college like video games were a big part of like an activity we did together and then it was nice as we went to college and then you know in during college and post-college days as as people move apart and go different places for jobs or partners or whatnot you know it was a good way to stay connected because we could we knew it we got home from work the day we could all get on and play games together and it's just like we're sitting there like you said on the couch next to each other again very nice way to keep that group strong and we did that for a long time and now we're sort of struggling to find a game we all want to play together and everyone's kind of spiraling in different directions and i think I've been, I've been trying to theorize, and part of it, I think, is that is because as there's a certain graph, which I'm sure you can relate to, especially now having a child, that, like, as you go through life, you know, go through adulthood, and you start acquiring more responsibilities and, you know, realize that I need to, like, I don't know, like, do things around the house and, like, not be a lazy piece of shit and work and take care of myself and, like, cook food and all these different things, uh, you naturally have less time to just like play video games for hours on then and therefore when you do a free time you're kind of like i really want to do exactly what i want to do and i think that's like a a struggle yeah no i mean i think it is i mean i think it is part of growing up you just you get choosier about what you do with your time and like yeah i don't i'm not really interested in um just getting my ass handed to me in a game for hours on end um 
in a multiplayer environment, especially a multiplayer environment that is, you know, I know is like built into all kinds of like dark web practices to like get me to buy coins to <laughs> get, um, you know, cosmetic upgrades. Um, and so, if I, yeah, if I'm going to sit down and make time to like sit down and play a console game or, you know, a PC game. And it's different. Again, I, keep, I know I keep coming back to Eternal, but with Eternal, it's on my phone. It's on my iPad. I can pick up, you know, I've got some dead time. I can, you know, I can pick it up wherever I am, play a couple of matches and then drop out as opposed to, you know, coming downstairs to the to the living room and firing up the PlayStation and turning on the TV and turning on the soundbar and loading up the game and, you know, loading into wherever I am and, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's it's a bigger production. And if I'm going to go through all that, I want to I want to know that the experience I'm going to have is going to be mostly good. Yeah. Um, and there are games that I want to play where like I'm I'm going to invest time in getting better at this game so I can enjoy myself um, like Sekiro, the, the latest um, from software game. Um, you like you have to get good at that game. You have to you have to learn the mechanics and you have to learn how to parry and um, uh, in order to enjoy it. And like I enjoyed getting better at that game. But that's also a single player experience that is carefully designed around its own learning curve mm. and it's teaching you how to play it as it goes and it's teaching you how to play the way it wants you to play and rewards you for that whereas if i'm just playing online i have to adapt to whatever the online meta happens to be mm -hmm. and i'm not necessarily rewarded for that and you know a single player game it wants to teach you how to play it teaches you how to be better um, and if it's well designed, it leaves a little breadcrumb trail for you of here's what you need to be working on. Like, that's kind of how boss battles generally work. Like, you spend a level in the game, in the, in the broadest sense here, learning a particular skill. And then the boss is the final test of that skill. And then once you've learned that, then, okay, now we're going to move on to the next phase of the game. Because you have mastered double jumps, you know? This level was teaching you how to double jump. The boss was testing your double jump skills. And now you will continue having mastered the double jump. Online multiplayer does not work like that. There is no structure to teach you how to play. You just keep getting sniped from half a map away by a four-year-old. Figure it out, dude. And there's no, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. So there's no guarantee that even by practicing a particular skill set, that will pay off in the end, you know? That's really interesting because I feel the exact opposite. Hmm. Like, even though it's, I will admit that it can be frustrating at points, I would rather bang my head against other players for six hours than play the same level twice in a single player game. And I think part of that's why, and like you, you framed it in an interesting way. I never really thought of it that way that like you use the word carefully designed. And, you know, that is something I've always struggled with because the range of skills for like skill level for like a single player game is so so wide and varied which is true for multiplayer as well but um i always felt that i was just playing against ones and zeros then and it was just like it 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 feels diminishing when i quote unquote accomplish something in a single player game because it's just like well some guy just decided this guy does 10 damage instead of <laughs> eight and if he just made it one more i wouldn't have won so that seems like a really like that's a very that's an oversimplification of game design by by many means. But I always just felt like 
I don't really want to like just do the same thing over and over again, even though it, it can be rewarding in a certain way. But I'm also just probably just like stubborn and impatient. So I don't want to like I could never play Dark Souls game. It would just be like the worst experience of my entire life, probably. But it is weird just how it's a good insight into probably why it is hard for a group to pick a game or whatever because it's like people really do experience games in different ways at different points in their lives well no i mean i enjoy like getting better at multiplayer games like there are certain multiplayer games that i really like to play um i really liked playing battlefield um Mm. back a generation or so ago um battlefield being i know you know this but for everybody else it's a um large-scale military shooter um you know big teams against big teams on big maps with tanks and planes and uh, it's class-based meaning you you play a particular role maybe you're a sniper or you're a medic or you're a um you know a heavy gunner etc etc um and i did really enjoy those for a while um because i felt like the at least but I think it was Battlefield 4 was the one I, I really played a lot of. Like, it really incentivized you to really, really learn your class and really, really, you know, kind of commit to a particular gun and really, really learn that and master that gun. And, like, you know, you you pick a particular sniper rifle and you just you just get this kind of muscle memory feel for what the bullet drop on this thing is. And, you know, exactly how long it takes to... um you know, to, you know, to cock the gun between shots. And like, you just get this kind of sixth sense for these things. Um, and because it's class-based, it incentivizes you to like know your role and do the things that, you know, that, you know, that move your team forward as opposed to just running around and trying to get as many kills as possible. Um, I really enjoyed that because the multiplayer was designed around incentivizing you to play your to play your role and to, you know, carry your weight on the squad. And if you did those things, you would move up through the ranks. There will, was still kind of this like uh, guiding hand of the of the authors kind of saying like the path to maximum enjoyment is this way, right? If you want to play recon, here are the things you want to do. We will reward you with experience and tell you you are doing the right things. Um, and then your team will do better and you will, you know, you'll get the unlocks, etc. You'll get the all the little numbers that you want. Um, so there's still kind of a guiding path. Um, I used to play uh, a lot of Street Fighter. And that was another one where you, you pick a character, you commit to that. And there's a clear feedback loop of... I am playing this character correctly or I am not. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but a lot of other multiplayer games, I feel like that's not as strong. And um, especially like battle royale type games that don't have a real strong like class and squad setup, where it's just kind of like everybody's in here. We're all trying to kill each other. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I definitely, despite the fact that I like Apex, I'm not sure. I really can't even point my finger why I find it compelling because I tend to fi- favor the kind of games you do as well. Like there's a wide range for those of you unfamiliar with like video games or even the more specifics of like the first person shooter category. There's like this broad range and like almost more of like a matrix, of, like styles of gunplay and like mechanics, right? Like mm-hmm. I have, I have a really good friend of mine. We played video games together for like 15 years and he, also my brother-in-law it's like, you know, it's like CS and quake, like those kind of games. Like it's only about how good of a shot you are. 
yep. effectively and quick, you know, and then, you know, some more thing was like Unreal Tournament, which was like more about movement and like, you know, have all these dashes and double jumps and it's very fast paced, uh, you know, and then I, I also played a lot of Battlefield. Mine was Battlefield 2142. It was like the futuristic mm-hmm. one. Um, I played a lot of that game. And I, I also like the grand scale of those like tanks. And because I'm not the greatest shot, like hopping in a tank was like, oh, I can actually be helpful. Or like, yeah, you know, the leadership and the squad based stuff. I really enjoy that. Um, I was playing for a while. I played Planet Side 2. Have you ever heard of that game? Mm-hmm. That was a lot of fun. I mean, that that's games like you like that's like battlefield times a hundred, right? Cause you can have battles with literally thousands of people in it. Um, but then again, you start hitting this point where it's like, well, then you, you just feel like a nobody, right? Like you have no effect on the course of this battle. Cause there's literally, you know, 150 tanks just shooting at each other. You're just running around like, God, what am I doing? Uh, so I, I do, I definitely think they're doing a battlefield like free week. I'm not sure if the new ones are any good or anything, but I, I also was enjoying the, Battlefront 2, the Star Wars one, similar mm-hmm. kind of thing, right? But I'm not sure. I'm curious to see what the role, like, shooters have kind of fragmented in. Like, there's, like, the Battle Royales. Um, there's, like, you know, the more, like, class-based arena shooters, like something like Overwatch. Yep. Which I think is, you know, is a good game. It's one of those games that's... If you ever have this happen where, like, you can't fault a game for any mechanical or objective reason, but you're just like, nah, I don't know. Just didn't stick with it. That's kind of Overwatch for me. Yeah, well, I think... Uh, I, I know the, the point I bounced off Overwatch was um, you fall out of it for long enough and then all of a sudden you realize that, you know, oh, shit, I haven't played in two weeks and now there's two new characters and a new map and they changed this other character's, like, entire, like, uh, gameplay style. So I'm not going to have fun when I get back in. Like, that's the thing, again, it's that learning curve where... Um, like knowing that, like getting into a multiplayer shooter right now for me, any one of them, pick a shooter. Um, I know I'm going to have negative fun for a long time just because it's like, I have to learn the maps and I have to learn the characters and I'm not going to have, I'm just going to get destroyed by dudes who know more about it than me for a very long time. And I'm just not interested in that period. Whereas a single player game, like there, the times where you have no idea what you're doing, the game knows you has no idea what you're doing and it's going to be guiding you along and curving the difficulty up. Whereas if I'm just going to jump into like an ongoing multiplayer shooter right now, like it does not give a shit about where I am on the difficulty curve. Theoretically, there's matchmaking to solve for this, but uh, I've been playing video games. I don't believe matchmaking exists. (laughs) Um, I... I feel like it's harder to gauge in an FPS because to gauge between like good and, and like in a, in a micro situation where you just got killed by somebody, right? Like it's hard to gauge, like they're better than me or like they just got a little more lucky than I did. Um, as opposed to a game, I think like, like eternal or like, uh, like my game of choice for many, many years and people roll their eyes. But like my friends and I, the big game we played together for a very long time was league of legends. And I was actually like good at that game. Like, and we like played in tournaments and like, you know, we like took it kind of seriously and had a lot of fun. But once again, that's the same kind of thing where it's just like, I don't have the time to keep up with like the meta and, you know, not being a play for a week or two. It's just like, well, now you, now you suck again. And it's like, yeah, back in the day when I could play three hours a day, I was like, fine, whatever. Even, even in a shooter, you just knowing the maps is like 80% 
of uh, your success in those games. Yeah. And you only learn the maps by getting in them and playing them over and over again. So you just you have that period where you just can get trashed mm-hmm. over and over and over again. Um, so, yeah. But yeah. I did. Um, I did play a video game, a single player video game um, uh, called Control. Oh, I've heard of this. Which um, I really had a good time with. Um, it's an action game. Um, I've heard it compared to a Metroidvania type game where um, you're kind of in a, a big kind of it's not an open world, but you can theoretically explore the entire environment from the start. But there are certain doors that are closed because you can't jump high enough to get to it or you need to find a different kind of key. Um, and there's a lot of backtracking. It's kind of like that. Um but the setting is really fascinating. Uh, it takes place in this kind of really spooky, like, federal office building that is kind of alive and shifting around. And it's kind of this X-Files vibe and it's a little Twin Peaks vibe. Um, and there's that one Internet thing. I think it's SCP. Have you heard of this? Where it's almost like a Wikipedia for like a government uh, repository of all kinds of paranormal oddities. It's mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Um, so it, it, it's really kind of it's a neat setting that you haven't really seen before. And it's made by the studio Remedy, who made the Alan Wake series, who, who do a really good job with narrative. Um, and I thought this game was going to go to a really, really cool place because it starts out and the character you play, Jesse Faden, she just kind of shows up at this office building and she's having this internal monologue with uh, some kind of voice in her head. You know, they're not really clear at the beginning of who she's talking to, but she's talking to it in the second person. She's calling it you all the time. And she's saying you like, you know, like, you know, she'll have these moments where she's having dialogue with another character and it'll switch to what's clearly dialogue inside of her head. And she's, she says like, Oh, should I tell them about you? No, no, not yet. They're not ready. And for a while, I'm thinking, is she talking to me, the player? Because she's talking about like, oh, you brought me here and 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 you know what we're doing here. And, and you know, and it's almost like, OK, this is a game called Control. And the character in the game might be talking to me, the player, like breaking the fourth wall. Um And I thought, like, this could be doing some really interesting things because it also plays with you're not really sure if Jesse might have mental illness issues or what's real and what's not. There's a lot of really cool stuff with that. Um, And the game itself is beautiful. And the action, the loop of the action is pretty good. It's not perfect, but it's a mix of kind of third person shooting and you also have some telekinetic powers so you're like picking up chunks of the environment and throwing them at bad guys and doing cool stuff like that um it's a lot of fun um and it's a it's a pretty good like single player like i want to play through this and you know i just want to see a cool story that has beginning middle and end um i will say the ending's a little bit of a letdown it does the thing that i hate that so many video games do where it doesn't give you a final boss battle you just fight a bunch of waves of increasingly difficult normal bad guys do you know what i mean yeah and i don't like that it feels anticlimactic and you know again i have that you know like we just talked about that kind of philosophy of like 
the boss battles are like, these are the big tests of your skill, you know? Mm -hmm. And there's something about some kind of one-on-one encounter with a final boss that I really enjoy. And maybe that's because I play so many Dark Souls and, you know, from software games where there's something symbolic and, you know, amazing about the final boss. And when it's just like, oh, this time there's 30 guys with rocket launchers, it feels like such a cop out. Yeah, I actually, you know, I don't play Star Wars games, but I feel the same way. Like I've played a lot of games where that last, you know, sequence, it's either they like said too many, just like a bunch of little guys or it's anticlimactic in general, or it's just like all done through cutscenes, And it's yeah. like, this is a video game. You know what I mean? Like, I don't like I'm supposed to be playing this stuff, not just seeing it happen on the screen. Although I know you're a big Metal Gear Solid fan, so I don't know how that plays out for you. But um, yeah, the I just feel like you need to give me a sense of closure and excitement at the end of a game or I'm going to walk away, away feeling pretty subdued by it. So, yeah, and that's one of the things that I love so much about the From Software games, the Dark Souls, the Bloodborne, the Sekiro, um, is that because so much of the kind of quote-unquote narrative is you as a player getting better at the game and mastering the si- systems that when you beat that final boss you feel like you have you have done something you have come through this thing it is it's so cathartic because you know that 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 final encounter represents the culmination of everything you have learned throughout the course of of, of playing this game mm-hmm. um and it really it, it's the final exam and it feels so good <laughs> and Man, what I, I probably it probably took me more than a hundred tries to beat the final boss of Sekiro, but when I did, it was like I felt like now I had fully embodied this like, you know, master ninja character that I've been playing this whole time. And since so much of the story of that is you're playing this kind of this ninja character who's kind of fallen from grace, and part of the story is kind of you it's not like restoring your honor in like a kind of tropey samurai movie kind of way but like you know kind of returning to form and then you know when you finally have that final showdown because the final showdown is basically you ninja with a sword versus samurai with a spear um and also lightning powers but but that's okay but like so it really just feels like this one-on-one showdown of like this is it this is the final test of your abilities and it's like and i've spent the entire game developing those abilities and when you get there, man, oh, feels so good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I get that. And I um, I wanted to ask, are, are you going to be playing Death Stranding? Of course I fucking am. <laughs> <laughs> that oh, was a T-ball question for you. Oh, man. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to be playing Death Stranding, um, which is the uh, Hideo Kojima's uh, new game. Um, because, yeah, of course. Of course I want to see what happens when that guy, um, when that guy decides to just go... Um, go full crazy they said it's gonna come out for pc eventually so i might be able to play it too yeah which is an interesting uh, giant bomb was talking about this like such a weird timing of that announcement because if you're sony who invested a lot of money in publishing this game for the ps4 uh yeah you don't want people like deciding a week before the ps4 game comes out that they'll maybe they'll just wait for the pc version but (laughs) whatever it's fine that's true uh yeah it looks looks weird Oh, it's super weird. Um, and apparently the the central gameplay mechanic is you are hiking through terrain delivering packages. Yeah. I mean, That's that sounds like kind of cool. Like yeah. to me. Apparently, um, eventually you get weapons. Plus there's like ghosts 
or something? There are ghosts, and there's a baby in a jar, and um, Guillermo yeah. del Toro. Uh, significant portions of the game devoted to uh, managing your human waste. So Gross. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, speaking of video games, to transition out of video games, uh-huh. uh, I wanted to ask you for further thoughts on the Witcher trailer, which, to be fair, is not based on the video game, although obviously... There's a reason uh, yeah, you're making okay. this show. <laughs> so this is the, the latest trailer for The Witcher, which will be on Netflix. Um, and they've, they've really been going out of their way to talk about, like, this is based on the books, not the video game. And it's like, sure looks a fucking lot like the video game, guys. Yeah, visually like, inspired by the video game, if nothing else. But I guess, from my understanding of the way the story works, generally for The Witcher, is that, and it's not all one cohesive canon, but my understanding is that all or the majority of the video games, which are one, two, and three at this point, take place after the books. All right. Which is kind of interesting. Or like maybe there's some overlap there a little bit. But and like I say, it's not all like one cohesive canon. I don't think there's more books being published. I think it's pretty much a done thing. But I think one of the points is that sometimes one of the complaints people had, although I think seeing it in full, you know, last final trailer, like full effects glory like you know that henry cavill's too young and too pretty to play Geralt, and it's like well he's supposed to be earlier in his career than we see him in witcher 3 which is what people i mean they're obviously drawing a lot on that sure style but you know maybe making some excuses for like why he doesn't look quite as grizzled and ripped up as he does in witcher 3 i don't understand this thing that people do man (laughs) like yeah it's it's like i don't really care if they're just like it doesn't this thing that people this need that people feel to have everything just all neatly fit together into some cohesive overall canon and structure. It's just like it's OK, man, if um, if all of a sudden James Bond just de-aged by 30 years and now he's blonde, like just it's fine. It's The Witcher. There are books and those books are going to tell a different story than the TV show. And the TV show is going to tell a different story than the video games or tell a different story than the books. And it's all fine. Just enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I yeah. think that, I mean, I think that I, I've been going to this with like low expectations. I mean, they got Henry Cavill, which is a big name and it's not like they're putting some money behind it, but I was like, you know, I, I don't want to be burned with high expectations. I don't know a lot about the books. I would like to read them at some point, but, uh, I was just sort of like, if this is just a show where I get to see a guy that looks remotely like Geralt from the video game going around and beating up monsters and bad guys with a sword, like, I'm pretty much okay with that, even yeah. if it's not very good. Here's here's my point of view on it. I really like the setting and the ideas of The Witcher. I could not get through the video games because um, that game is a really bad menu system that occasionally you get to play a video game in between bouts of managing the menu system. I know it's gotten better, but mm-hmm. I just, it, it, those games were too complex and they couldn't get out of their own way for me to enjoy the, like, and actually, and the truth is the gameplay elements of the Witcher games for the most part for me just felt like something I had to get through to experience the world in the story. I know other people have a different, have had a different experience, but that's, my experience with the Witcher games. Gotcha. Uh, so if this is a way for me to enjoy the world and story of the Witcher without having to clonk around in a menu, fantastic. And I know I could read the books and maybe I will. But uh, yeah, I don't know. This this the trailer looks pretty promising. I'm like, that looks like a decent show. The action looks good. The you know, the costumes and, and setting look good. 
Henry Cavill is not terrible. Um, I actually think he might of, of everything I'm seeing in that trailer. He and it's not necessarily because of what he does in the trailer, but he might be the weakest link in all of this because I haven't. He's a very he's a good physical actor in terms of his like physical presence, uh, the work he does in action scenes and like his facial expressions. But um, I've never really believed him when he talks in movies. Mm-hmm. So we'll see how he does in this. I don't know. Luckily, girls talk all that much. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that'll be. I'm, I'm excited for it. It'll be a good, it comes out December 20th. So sure. kind of like a nice Christmas break just to sit down and binge, but, um, cool. So, uh, what else we got here? Talk about some books. Books. Yeah. You're, you're reading books. Yeah. So for me, this is a really weird, like a new, like I have read series where new books have come out, but I'm now having been reading a lot more and just like picking up new, newer series had a, this weird situation where I'm realized like this fall or maybe like the last half of this year, it's like I have multiple new installments of series or books or authors I like coming out like within, you know, back to back situations. So um, I've read two of those three books. Uh, one, the first one I read was Dark Age, which is the Pierce Brown second book in the second trilogy, uh, the, the Red Rising trilogy, Red mm-hmm. Rising series now, I guess. Um the first book in that series was Iron Gold, which I read last year or two years ago, I forget. And I liked it. It was good. Um, some cool ideas of basically, you know, not to spoil anything, but like what happens when a when a revolution succeeds and, and what are the growing pains after that? It's not just, you know, gumdrops and lollipops, right? Like it's a lot of hard work to be done. I think it's a good message. Um, this book, dark, this second book, Dark Age, was much longer much more complex in the plotting, which was a little frustrating at first, but turned out okay in the long run for me. Um, the pacing was interesting in that it was a multi-perspective book, but it spent, it kind of chunked those perspectives up into like different parts of the book. Like the first 30% of the book, 20% of the book is like just one or that's basically two characters perspectives that are kind of juxtaposed. And then they kind of mm. do it again for the next section. And then eventually they start to sort of weave everything together. But I kind of liked it because you could sort of focus in on people for a little bit, including the first part of the book, which is a just a t- 20% of the book is just like a giant battle on the planet Mercury. And it's hmm. basically just Warhammer 40K. It's <laughs> like, well, I was like reading, I was like, this is, this is just what I'm reading now. Um, so in, in like in like a cool way, but mm-hmm. also in this sort of way where this the scale and the stakes start to just like come unraveled because people have like tactical nukes on their mechs that they're firing into cities and blowing up like millions of people. And you're just like, all right, like, I guess this is what we're doing now. <laughs> it's hard to care when like like the casualties were twenty five million. And today it's just like, OK, Oof. that's a lot of people uh, start to, you know, get a little out of hand at that point, I think. But it's it's fun stuff. Series is going some interesting places. We'll see uh, how it all turns out. I also read, we'll get there. Hold on. What's also coming out in a couple weeks here, I think, is Starsight, which is the second book from Brandon Sanderson in his Skyward trilogy, which is a non-Cosmere, his sort of take on sci-fi. Skyward got very positive, uh, you know, initial readings, and I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, just about a girl in a starship living, you know, they're, they're on a planet. And it's like this really weird kind of mystery of like why humans are on this planet and what's going on. And uh, just it's more of a on the edge of YA, I guess you'd say. But in that kind of a sweet spot that Sanderson, I think, can write pretty strongly in. Um, so I'm excited for that. And but the biggest one, Greg, which you're reading, 
and I read way too fast. Yeah. What is A Little Hatred, which is Joe Abercrombie's uh, first book in his new trilogy set in the First Law universe. Yeah, I... So you're, you finished it. I just <sighs> yeah, finished... weeks ago. <laughs> um, uh, I just finished part one, <laughs> which I think is the first third of the book, maybe. It sounds about right. Um, essentially just introducing the characters. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the general outline of the plot. Um, but, ah, it's so good. It is really so good. good. Um, and we talked about it and, and just, it's only like the second chapter or so, but there's just this fantastic thing he does. And, um, his books are written the same way George R. R. Martin does, where it's kind of, you get a different point of view character for each chapter. So you're in that character's head and it starts with this battle scene and you're this character and he's just so, you know, he's, he's, you know, thrilling in the glory of battle and all of that. And then, and then he kind of has this after action conversation with his mother, who's kind of the de facto general at this point. Um, and she basically talks to him about, you know, all of the, you know, mistakes he made and, you know, how this was this, you know, actually this, this battle was a mistake to begin with, even though they won, they would have been better off not fighting, et cetera, et cetera. You've seen this scene before in countless TV shows and movies and books, but the way that Abercrombie writes this chapter and the subtle little cues that he gives about the character's emotional state as he kind of comes down from this high of adrenaline and goes from this, like, you know you know, blood, guts, glory stage all the way down into like, you know, this depressive regret um, over the course of the chapter. But Abercrombie does it in such a beautiful way because he never beats you over the head with telling you what the character is feeling. It's just little things that he noticed that that you notice that he's bringing in that all of a sudden that the character is noticing and thus then you as the reader are noticing like, um, you know, he starts to pick up on details about like how small his hands look in his mother's hands when she holds, you know, when she's like taking him by the hand and like little things like that, where you just see this emotional journey just over the course of this conversation without ever making it explicit, just by the details that he Abercrombie chooses to include. You just, you go on this complete path um, and just the things that start to occur to the character as you kind of see his internal monologue as he goes and just when he realizes like, oh, that's right. He he didn't I didn't see that other character after the battle. Oh, he must be in the um, he must be in the wounded tent and then finds out. Oh, no, he isn't. And then as the, the POV character starts to start to put together like, oh, right. Well, what are we what are we going to tell his wife? Oh, what are we going to tell his kid? Oh, where are they going to live now? Like, as these things just start to dawn on him, um, such a masterful job of making you think you're reading one kind of chapter and getting you all pumped up on the battle with the character and then really sucking all of that out of you. Um, just so well done. Yeah, I what I love about the book and, you know, it also is, I think, similar to Sanderson. I think Abercrombie is, you know, through the course of the past six books, previously set in 
first law world he's really coming to an, his own as a writer because mm-hmm. I found that I like the first for Slaw trilogy and there's a lot of really cool ideas and good stuff in it um, and stuff. I'm even realizing now, like, oh, that was really smart back then. Um, that's really playing well now. But I like the standalones better for the most part and kind of incrementally better even as each one goes, with the exception of minus the last two um, switch, because I think Heroes is just amazing. But um, he's just such a stronger writer and such a tighter writer now. Mm-hmm. And I just that's great that like the continued progress. But he's doing something really fun here because in the first trilogy, most of the point of view characters are incredibly unlikable Mm -hmm. or just like evil. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Also, a lot of them are like older, Mm -hmm. which is kind of a different take for a fantasy book. That's something that I've talked about with Sanderson where like the in Stormlight Archives, the Dalinar points of view are my favorite because just like you don't have a point of view from like an old grizzled guy very often in Mm -hmm. these books. And you still get those in the new series, but most of the point of view characters we have are very young, almost in the more traditional fantasy kind of way. Yes. Uh, Many of them are children or related in some way to kind of like, I'll put in heavy air quotes, the heroes of our previous couple, the previous six books. And they're a little more... I won't say they're more idealistic, but they just have a very different view, the very young view of the world that comes out in comparison to how most of the characters in the first series and in uh, the, the standalones as well kind of have one where it's a little naive, um, you know, and not always necessarily in like a positive, like, you know, in the example you're saying with the character Leo, he is a very naive, young, you know, kind of like heroic view of the world, um, black and white view of the world, where that's not how all the characters are, a character like Orso who is basically just like a nihilist but in that sort of like i'm a young nihilist because i can be kind of you know what i mean not well, like right, a nihilist because i've seen shit for 60 years and well I've, and he's he's young rich and horny like he right he has no reason to have a point of view on anything oh uh, and and you know even even the character of and kind of i'm forgetting his name already uh what's the character's name who um where's the glasses broad Broad, yes, thank you. He has two names, that's why I keep getting confused. Um, no, he, that's not right. Gunner something. Gun, yeah, but they call him something else as well. Um, he, like, even though he's older, he he is kind of like, he had that view and wishes he could have that view still, I think. And I just really like the way he, to your point, can, like, pump up and deflate people very quickly and, like, very precisely pop someone's uh, perspective on the world. Yeah, he... I will say that one big advantage that Abercrombie has over Sanderson is I think that Abercrombie has a much keener emotional sensitivity. Mm. Um, I think he can uh, he can write much more believable and much more realistic and much more nuanced emotion than Sanderson can. Um, And I think that's I really like that. Um, But I think that that's an interesting twist. You point out that all of a sudden now he's writing younger characters, which are like a lot of them are a little bit more the traditional fantasy mold of like, oh, this is the young prince and, you know, this is the headstrong young woman who's trying to prove herself in in the man's world. And you've seen these tropes before, but he he smartly writes them, I think, in there's still a little bit of a subversion of fantasy troop tropes because they're not like kids. It's not like first law babies, you know, no, that they yeah. are younger, not only in years, but also just in experience. 
But um, but like young people, like they're horny and they're kind of dumb. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, uh, they think they know everything, but, you know, they not necessarily. Um, and just like the little scenes where so there's this relationship between Savine and Orso. And again, it, it's a credit to Abercrombie's writing of um, the way he kind of plays with this, that it, it starts out and you think that they're relationship is very transactional and that's the way they both handle it but then as you keep reading you realize that like both of them like genuinely have feelings for each other but they're both like just just trying to be like too cool and badass about it yeah and like but he does that in and again it's these subtle ways of he does it without like actually just going out and telling you but like you get an orso chapter and you know, you're here, you're, you're kind of in his head as he's reacting to other people talking about her. And you're like, oh, he actually like he actually really admires her and, you know, has feelings for her. And then they does the opposite thing with, uh, you know, a chapter of Savine. And you're like, lesser authors would just tell you, you know, there'd be a narration and it's like, oh, if only they could tell each other how they really felt. But so it's, it's not a groundbreaking idea, but it's just the way he presents it. Um, it just feels so much more human and believable and fresh, even though it's not necessarily anything new and groundbreaking. Yeah, I think one thing he's he's done really good job at and in that way and like the way you're describing, but also in one way that I'm really enjoying is his world building is this is a similar way. A similar kind of method to accomplish it, as opposed to Sanderson, who might just like, which is completely fine, you know, to just like info dump at different mm-hmm. points. And some of that stuff is his stuff is so complex, you kind of need to, to do that. But we have six books and a short story compilation that have, you know, established what at first I thought was a pretty thin world in the first Slaw Trilogy, but now has come to feel pretty full to me in like a cool way. Um, still very mysterious world. Right. When it mm-hmm. comes to the magic and some of the stuff going on. But, you know, enough about some of the players and, and their perspective and their motivations and the fact that they're all still many of them are still around. And some of them are almost mythological figures in the case of, you know, like someone like Logan. Otherwise, others are just like characters you're directly interacting with that are now, you know, 30 years older, 20 years older, however many years it's been. Mm-hmm. And just knowing what they've been through and but still kind of like. I don't know. I can't think of an example where a book series has done that for me in a very this strong a way. And just like once again, to your point, the characters are young and they don't know what you know. Like, you know, way more than the characters know about a lot of stuff that went down. Yeah. Which is kind of like a cool it's it's very oh. like a unique way to do it. And you're like they're in a scene and they're like in way over their head and they have no idea. And I'm just sitting there reading going like, oh, God, oh, God, like. Don't well, there's don't piss this person. Yeah. (laughs) So I have a good example of that. So there's a scene where um, you've got the two kind of northern girls, uh, Rick and Isern, and Mm -hmm. they've kind of just had a narrow escape from the bad guys. Yeah. And they get to a river or something or a stream. Uh, Maybe I'm getting the details wrong here, but you're right. They see somebody coming across the way and um and we get the the description of this person in advance. And we know because we've read the books, we know exactly who that is. That's Call Shivers. And where we left Call Shivers at the end of the standalone books, he could go a lot of different ways. <laughs> because um 
this was a character who started out kind of as a shithead and then kind of had some redemption and then kind of got royally fucked over by everyone in his life and maybe kind of turned back into a shithead. So things were kind of a toss up when last we met Call Shivers. So now you see him on the other side of this river and the um and the two characters we've been following, they we get the sense they know who that is, but I'm like Oh shit. He could easily have in the in the intervening however many years between the last book and now he could have become an absolute psychopath murderer or he could have maybe gone back to being a little bit of a nice guy and like you're on a fucking razor's edge right there because <laughs> you don't know where this character has ended up because it could have gone a lot of different ways and a lot of time has passed and the world has not been kind to this guy. <laughs> um and then it turns out that he ended up cool and I'm like, "Oh, my buddy. Yeah. <laughs> you made it through." You know? No, but like, yeah. but again, it's that thing of like what you as the reader know, but there's also a lot you don't know because a lot of time has passed. Right. And, you know. Yeah, he has um, a good job of like, like playing with the things you know and what the characters don't know, but also like, you know, not giving you too much knowledge. There's still a lot more for you to understand about the state of this new, you know beginning to industrialize you know world and, and like to say the world has changed a lot you know when we kind of left off the the big nation in the south the Gurkish empire was like mm-hmm. one of the big superpowers in the world and now it's completely fallen apart and now you know there's some allegory stuff going on but um you know refugees pouring in from there because well we we know what happened probably um but i just love that it's like i, I have mixed feelings about some of it because it's like oh I kind of would like to have seen that, you know, but that's kind of his style. Like you don't see everything. Like we spent a lot of time in Styria with Monza and all the different little nations in Styria during uh, best served cold. And then you don't go back and you just hear bits and pieces of what Monza has been up to and that they fought a, you know, two wars with the, um, uh, with the union. And it's just like, okay, I had to just like accept that and move on. And it's an interesting it's an interesting choice, and mm-hmm. I, I'm at first I probably was like, no, I want to see everything because that's just like my style of yeah. doing books. But I'm I kind of let let my let go of the reins a little bit and said, all right, I trust you. Like, let's keep moving forward, and I don't need to see everything and to really. And it's almost a little more fun because I'm filling in the blanks and, and right. kind of piecing it together. So and there's some uncertainty, like when you meet a new character or not a new character, but our returning character comes back. You're like, oh well. How do they fit into things? Yeah. Because alliances have shifted and, you know, people who were enemies in previous books, like now they seem to be, you know, on the same side. So, you know, there's a lot. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, all the point of view characters are great, in my opinion, Um, particularly like the ones that are most connected to the previous characters. But uh, all of them are interesting in their own way. I think the plot and the state of the world is a very compelling story you know this the whole book is very interesting the last you know the the end of the book is really cool and as opposed to george r R. martin or patrick rothfuss uh i believe we said before but joe abercrombie made has made the very smart decision to write the majority of these books all three books Mm -hmm. at once in one go and we'll be releasing them one every year for the next you know this year and then the to two following years I mean, I think he's still doing some revisions and stuff, but, sure. you know, they're effectively done. Yeah. 
And he did that for two reasons. One was because he really liked, he said he learned from his first series and other things. Like, he likes to know what the whole thing looks like together because sometimes when you get to that last, the climax of the third book, you're like, mm, I really would have liked to have done this differently. And now he can, as opposed to kind of being stuck, you know, with what you have. And secondly, he's like, he, I mean, he didn't explicitly call these people out, but he wanted to be able to give some people a consistent reading experience for a time of their life. And that's, that's something that I value greatly at this point. Yeah. There's, you, you kind of make a commitment to finishing things. Yeah. So, uh, I would highly recommend, uh, fans of this podcast to check out some of his work. I think that, you know, you definitely, the first all trilogy is where you want to start. You could probably, I think if you want to get to these books, you definitely need to read the heroes because so much is based. Yeah, a I lot mean, of characters. Just read them all. They're read good. All. They're, they're great. good. Yeah, and they're all quick reads. They're, you they're... can maybe skip Red Country if you really wanted to, but yeah, Red Country's okay. Um, I'm not saying it, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying if it's like you're worried about the context of it's sure. Like, it's a so, it, it's a good book, but it has very little impact so far on the the the, the, the larger plot. But they're all quick reads. They're they're pulpy. They're easy reads. They're yeah. um uh they're page turners. You read them all. Yeah. Do yourself a favor. Yeah. No, I mean, you're not going to go wrong here. And interestingly enough, just a little bit of trivia that, uh, you know, that that I sent you this earlier, Greg, but the um, this is weird. I didn't know they did this. Like, this is strange. So there's that new Terminator movie, um, which I hear is OK, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but directed by Tim Miller, who did Deadpool and what else? Other cool stuff, right? I don't know. I'm not sure, actually. Um, anyway. He said in an article interview that, you know, he brought in a bunch of writers and and people in the industry and sci-fi and fantasy industry that he really likes and respects as sort of like consultants in the writing process and basically revealed that one of them is Joe Abercrombie and that he is effectively mostly responsible for one of the main characters of the new movie, which is like the Terminator human hybrid girl with the short hair from the trailers. I haven't seen the movie, but Mm -hmm. I forget her name, but on... Uh, that was, I was like, he's like, and he said, this guy is my favorite fantasy author. (laughs) And so I wanted to bring him in and get his opinion. I'm like, that's a cool idea. (laughs) Uh, I wish I I didn't know that people did that regularly. So that's kind of cool. Piece of trivia. Uh, Greg, do you want to talk about some Watchmen? Yeah. Let's talk about those Watchmen. Is there anything else from your list that you really wanted to get to? Yeah. Let's talk about them Watchmen boys. All right. Uh, so we're just talking about episode three. She was killed by... Falling space debris? Is that what it's called? I think space, space junk. junk. Space junk, yes. To be precise. Yes, space junk. Um, what did you think of this episode? Well, um, so I liked it in some ways. I, In other ways, I kind of feel like there's a pacing issue here because we really spent episodes one and two like really moving and developing the plot. And then we're like, now we need to do a character study on a new character. Mm. And not really advance the plot at all. So I don't really like that. But I will say as a character study, this was a hell of a character to study. And I really, really like um, this version of Lori Blake. Um, I really like how true they have stayed to the character and the history that was developed in the comics. And then a logical path in the intervening 30 years. Um to struggling with finding out that the comedian was her father and clearly embracing some of that. Um, 
but still carrying the baggage of her mother and and her own childhood. Um, And Gene Smart's performance of this, like, you know, everything is this joke that is also, you know, that's how she's communicating with everyone. And but they're jokes in a way that it's not like she's joking to get approval and uh, affection. It's she's using these this kind of jokey way of talking as this like power move. It's really well done. Yeah, um, I agree with your concerns with the pacing issue, especially given the show is only nine episodes. Yeah. Um, and it's supposed to, as I read today, you know, showrunner's goal is that this is a complete story with no intention of turning it into longer, you know, an ongoing series. Um, that's what Lindelof said mm-hmm. about this. Um, now, that's his intention. What HBO does is a whole other thing. But um, I agree. They did such a good job of making me without like info dumping or flashbacks or anything like that. Just like I know exactly who Laurie Blake is and why she is the way she is, you know, more or less. And they just do a really good job of like wrapping that up in a, in a tight way that makes me just all in on her character. I thought her performance was awesome. I thought that the way she commands a scene is impressive. Uh, but with that same level of like vulnerability and, and just like said that baggage from her past, just lingering there and the way that everyone's a little bit weird around her. Um, I think the character of PD is a good juxtaposition. Um, shout out to my, my history guy. Uh, <laughs> but I like the scene on the plane where he's just like, I'm not going to like ignore like who the hell you are as everyone else kind of seems to be doing. Um, yeah. And that's the weird thing. And that that's this weird duality with her because in some contexts, she is like insulting people for even bringing up her past. Right. Right. Like, why would you even talk about that? But then when we see her apartment, she's got like this big Andy Warhol painting of the Minutemen in there. And then she's carrying around her Dr. Manhattan sex toy and like, oh, my God, I wasn't sure if that was like a magazine cover with her on it or was that like a porn parody? It said it was I, like rebound because I wanted to ju- I was wearing the same thing. I, I missed it at first. I think it was an Esquire magazine. It looked okay. like it would be like a vintage like. Right. I don't know. But God, that fucking uh, dildo was that's not going inside. Anybody. Yeah. Um, um, but it's like uh, and then I'm sure we're going to learn later on that that's not what we thought it was. But probably um, it. You know, it, it's this. So it's like, why is she that way? You know, why is she publicly rejecting that past, but privately not? Um, it's weird. Yeah. I mean, her and her choice. I feel like her choice to sleep with Petey at the end is a, another complexity to that, where it's like he clearly, even though I think he was being, you know, being serious that like he's like, I, I don't I'm not just like a starstruck fan. Like, I know who you are. I know what you've been through. I find it interesting and fascinating more than just like a fanboy, but more as just like a, you have a compelling story and you're an important part of like our history. And I think her decision to sleep with him is sort of shows that she is still vulnerable in that way. Yeah. But she ends up objectifying him because, you know, he, he, she puts the mask on him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which is weird. And it's a callback to the scene in the original Watchmen where her and, and Night Owl are having, you know, intimate, intimate problems and it gets fixed when they put their costumes on. Right. Uh, uh, I, I also think it's like, it, I found it really compelling that just like she, you know, like you forget that to everyone else in the world, Dr. Manhattan is like, you know, 
this abstract idea but she was you know they were in love yeah it's her ex <laughs> yeah and she still you know still must have some kind of feelings for him and it makes me wonder like I kind of thought that we weren't going to like, I thought that little clip on Hill Mars was going to be all we were going to see, but like, I'm not sure now. I'm not, yeah. I'm not positive, but like, I'm not, cause I, and like the way the show was just feeling really grounded and stuff. I was just like, yeah, that's, he's just like an, like I said, an abstract force that just exists and just part of the world building. But I spent a lot of time talking about him and showing him in this episode. I was like, I'm not sure we're not going to see him show up at some point, but uh, oh, in what context, I don't know. But I, I think that we've been building too much to him to not have him have a direct impact on events of the show. Mm. I, I, I think he will come in as a actual personality at some point. Um, one thing, you know, did you like, I really like the juxtaposition and the, the way the show opens, the episode opens um, of like the fake, uh, you know, the fake bank robbery to catch the vigilante. He looks a lot like Batman. Yeah. And they call out that, you know, like these rich guys who want to dress up and, put people in harm's way it's just such a, a such a different way of approaching this you know the superhero thing that i i can't think I've, i can't say i've seen that before um but they, it was just like just really worked for me and you also see her bloodthirstiness but well and it's, it's interesting because again it's that thing of like it's a fully realized world of okay so the keen act in 1977 made you know vigilantism illegal and like okay so let's extrapolate out from that so who's in charge of arresting, you know, would be superheroes. And how would you do that? Would they be like, and it's like, well, there would be stings. They would like, you know, they would set up bank robberies for these superheroes to come foil. <laughs> yes. It's a, it's just, a, it's clever. Yeah. And um, so the, the other thing that happens, so the big, the big kind of plot that gets her there is that she gets assigned to investigate the murder in Tulsa. Yes. Of the police chief. And, you know, she says she'll kind of, you know, we're going to send this whole task force, but she's going to go herself plus PD. Uh, we also kind of realize it's it's basically in response to Senator Keene requesting her to go, who is the kind of schmarmy senator um, yes. that passed DOPA, the Defensive Police Act, which I thought was like a, a national thing, but apparently was just an Oklahoma thing. Yeah. Um, which was a little unclear earlier in the series so far, but... Um, but it sounds like it's catching on and people want to do it across the country. And interestingly, he's Senator Keene and the bill in the 70s that outlawed superheroes was the Keene Act. So there's some connection there that we have to make. But right. So maybe his son. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously this guy has uh, she, you know, she dangles and they dangle together like that. He is on track to be he's very popular, on track to be president. Um and I he'll think pardon he's, he, the night owl. Right. He pardons the night owl, which she has a pet owl, which is, you know, both symbolic, but also I think probably like was his owl or something. I don't know. Probably. Um, interesting, you know, to hear that. And in the context of this, you said, you know, you laid out like the sort of framing device for this episode is that she's talking to Dr. Manhattan via these like weird ass phone booths that people like. Yeah. I assume they're supposed to be like the equivalent of like. If you had like special prayer boxes and people like, yep. Now that God is kind of a real person, you want to send him something. To, <laughs> I don't know. It's strange, but um, I like how like goofy they look. They're like just like big blue like pills with like little worlds on top, and I don't know, just like goofy. But uh, she's sort of like outlying, you know, kind of what happened to people. Although it's weird that she was at Rorschach entirely. Yeah. Um, purposeful, I'd say. But I'm curious 
like sort of the details. I'm sure we'll learn of like why Night Owl is in prison and she is not. Yeah. Um, I assume it's because, you know, she, I don't know. I don't know. I don't really don't know. Maybe I assume maybe she, maybe she took a deal to work for the FBI. I, I don't know, you know, but, um, out of all the characters that end up in jail, it seems kind of like the one who is like, what would we qualify as like most good of the bunch, uh, is the one who's in jail. Um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on in this episode. We also learned that the racism detector. Yeah. That scene was great. Yeah. Um, I like that. Um, I like, I, I just really like that character and I really like that actor. And I think that's, I just want to see more of him. Um, mm. And then there's the Ozymandias subplot. <sighs> a lot of developments there. Yeah. He put on the damn suit, dude. <laughs> yeah. I was like, we're going there. Let's do this. <laughs> so what we learned is that he is clearly in some kind of captivity. Um, and he is trying to escape. He, he built that like space suit or something that was unsuccessful. Um, and it also seems like that in his captivity, he has limited, he's like limited to like pre-industrial technologies um, because he's doing all these things, but he's doing it all with like old fashioned sewing machines and bows and arrows and stuff. So the vibe I'm getting is that whatever kind of weird prison he's in those are the conditions that's like those are the things that are keeping him out of trouble is he's contained and he has no technology um yeah but that's obviously the we're gonna get as well we're gonna get more out of that um what do you think he's trying to like we see a catapult and we also see that in the trailer for the next episode we also see that he's making some sort of like it looks like a space suit space suit yeah. almost. he's he's trying to escape from wherever he is right and, and so the question is, who is the game warden and, you know, how will how will he escape? Um, My theory mm-hmm. is that he built this prison for himself hmm. at some point because he's clearly not all there in the head. Right. And that I bet that game warden is just another one of these clones. And basically when he, you know, when he, he basically wanted to put himself into an exile that he could you know maybe he's experiencing some sort of you know i I could see them going a route where like you know he's the smartest man in the world but that came at a cost of you know plus he's getting maybe just getting old but just like you know maybe it leads to some some sort of certain kind of dementia or something like that or memory loss or who knows Mm -hmm. but and he's like i can i can keep myself with all my money and all my resources i can keep myself confined here and i'll keep myself entertained by trying to escape and doing all these different things but i'm never actually going to get anywhere because i can't Hmm. Um, prison is undefined. I'm not sure. That's just a theory. Cause I'm trying to think of what other situation that would be the, like, I don't know why else they would, what other group would have any motivation for doing something like that to him in such luxury and, and, you know, all these sort mm-hmm. of things, but just a thought, but it, it was definitely, I mean, every scene he is in, I'm just like, this is awesome. I don't even know what we're yeah. doing, but it's awesome. <laughs> Jeremy Irons, man. Yeah. It's like such a good casting choice. And I said, you put on a damn suit. I love this. But like, yeah, just the little things. It's like, this guy's not all there. Like the game warden, like, oh, thanks for the tomatoes, by the way. He's like, oh, you're welcome. It's like, that's why I'm just like thinking like, yeah, no, it's like these like weirdly polite, you know? Right. Um, That's why it kind of seems like a game almost. Like, I I don't know. It's, it's strange, but um, I could see a situation where he, you know, built this prison for himself, but ends up outsmarting himself in some way. I, I don't know, but. I thought that this is an interesting episode. I thought that the stuff we haven't talked about yet was like where, you know, our, our quote unquote new character, Lori Blake kind of inter- interacts with sister Knight, Um, and in a 
pretty fucked up scene at a funeral, but uh, that was pretty well done, I thought. Um, I'm confused. I'm, I'm not certain where that's going. Yeah, I feel like we, we, we've we lost the central thrust of the mystery element. Mm-hmm. So I kind of hope we pick that back up. Do you have any theories on, on what's going on? No. <laughs> I kind of want to go back and, and like reread the comic this weekend just to kind of feel like because they're doing a really interesting job of like mirroring that yeah. storyline with a bunch of different things going on um you've got this murder and they think it's these guys but it's probably not and who is it and why and and that's and and so the the comic it, it, it's kind of kicked off by the murder of the comedian but that gets the rest of the Minutemen riled up because obviously he was a part of the team and they're worried that there might be a essentially a serial killer on the loose. Right. Suit killer. So that kind of gets everybody involved and, and it, it creates stakes to solving the mystery. But what the show doesn't really have is it seems like, all right, this guy had enemies and it seems like the police are still mostly in control of Tulsa and it seems like Will has more or less, he's either confessed to the murder or he damn well knows who did it. So it just kind of seems like there's a pretty clear path to get to murder solved problem over. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's almost like we now kind of lack the, like, what are we working towards? Right. Like, what's the point of this show now? So I really hope they do a better job in the next episode of like giving me more some more like stakes and a reason to care. Yeah, because it'll be effectively the halfway point. Because in the in in the original comic, like you didn't care that the comedian got killed, but you did. You were worried that somebody was going to kill these other characters. Mm-hmm. And here, I don't really mind that this Judd guy got killed because it does seem like he was involved with the clan and maybe the Seventh Cavalry. So all right, good riddance. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, I, I feel like they didn't, maybe they just chose a certain route, but like, at least from my initial viewing on the first episode, like they didn't broadcast to me that guy was a bad guy in any way. And I got a little bit of a vibe, like he's hiding something. Okay. I wasn't sure. I mean, you know, like, so he like, likes to snort some blow, but like a bad guy does that, that does not necessarily make, but I just sort of felt like the scenes he had with Sister Knight were like so authentic that I yeah. was like, okay. And I mean- if we're going to go a route that's like people are complex and whatever, like, cool, I'm cool with that. Um, but yeah, it starts to be like, why do we care? And, you know, at some point, I assume the Ozymandias storyline has to have to like connect with the broader story or. Yeah, I'm not. I'm just really curious to see what they go, because like that's sort of, that was who was behind it all last time. And like, are we just going to do that again? Doesn't seem that way. He doesn't seem to have any contact with the outside world. Um is there another mastermind character that we need to be thinking? I don't know. There's yeah. a lot of options, but I, I don't want to try and think I need to stick too hard to the what happened in the initial story. Because I don't think it's going to mirror it so aggressively. But yeah, I don't know. I, I think they're doing a really just like once again, they're continuing to build on this world in a way that I didn't think would be compelling, but is. And especially directly having a character from, you know, the comics like come back again and just like, oh, yeah, I forgot these characters like were interesting and like have a lot to them because you kind of forget over time right you kind of focus more on like what did this what did the story mean and what was it doing as opposed mm. to the actual story itself when it's like oh like this is actually like you know had some legs to it beyond just that so in this context at least yeah uh, no other predictions no i don't know i you know i don't really know where to uh where to go from here um but i'm excited yeah i mean it's still doing interesting things i'm surprised we didn't get more 
I was expecting more Will flashbacks because we, we kind of got those in the past two episodes. Yeah. But I, I thought, I, I I thought think those we'll near running just but. been a, um, I think it's just been, they had to kind of take a pause to do this stuff. So, yeah, and that's, that's fine for now. If, if this is the sacrifice to get such a cool character, I'm cool with that. Yeah. Cause I think she is cool. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, I guess we'll check in again next week. Yep. We'll keep moving through our, uh, random musings on things <laughs> and, uh, talk about some Watchmen. Uh, we'll have some, uh, art. Okay, Greg. So I need to ask you something. Uh huh. I think, I mean, you already said like you're going to get Disney plus because you have a daughter that is three or yes. two, three, two and a half, two and a half, almost three. Are you going to watch the Mandalorian? I don't know. I think you're going to watch the Mandalorian. I don't know. Between that, the Witcher and Watchmen, I can only do so many. Well, we got time. Like, you know, Watchmen's only you know, going to be there five weeks. Maybe get some overlap. We could discuss both for a few weeks. And then, you know, we should be done with both Witcher and or Mandalorian and uh, Watchmen by the time Witcher comes out. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. I've got to look at the calendar and see all these things, how, how all these things kind of line up. Okay. Uh, I, I am, I don't see a good reason not to get Disney plus at this point because for $7 a month, it's just like, I get all this stuff and all that stuff and all this stuff. And like, yeah, I could pirate it, I guess, and whatever else. But like, you know, down the road, there's me stuff I want to watch for the original content. And once again, it's, it's one beer a month, right? Like (laughs) I can, I can do that. And like, just, I mean, to be able to just throw on star Wars anytime I want just feels pretty good. Yeah. I don't know. Seems like a good deal to me. I mean, you, I mean, you must be happy. I mean, I guess you already have, what was Simpsons on before? Uh, FX. Oh, okay. Does that have like a, a streaming on demand thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So cool. All right. Well, that happens in less than two weeks. I think that comes so. out. That's crazy. I felt like just a year ago we were like, oh yeah, this Disney plus thing is coming. You know, it's just like time flies, man. Yeah. Time to feed the mouse some more money. Ugh. All right. See you next week. See you next week.